0: All right, if you got a Bible this morning, Revelation chapter 1, I would ask you to open uh, your Bible. We are introducing a series over the next few weeks on the book of Revelation. So, this is going to be our next expositional study. We're going to go through the book of Revelation by the grace of God. We'll go several chapters, we'll take a break. We'll go several more chapters, we'll take a break. We'll try to pace this study because it will be a very uh, intense study, but I think it's a very profitable study for us. uh, as we as we study this, you know, I mentioned last week, Revelation is one of the books that has kind of a stigma attached to it in the Bible. There's a lot of books of the Bible that are interesting, but there's probably not any book of the Bible that has more stigma attached to it than the book of Revelation. It has a lot of people that are interested in it. There are a lot of people that are critical of it. There are a lot of people that are fearful of it. Uh, so much so that even Christians, some Christians, won't even read the book of Revelation. And yet, God has given us His His Word, His complete Word. And it's all profitable for us. It's, it's, it's something that can help us grow as, as children of God. We actually even saw last week that there's a blessing associated with this book. He that readeth, they that hear, and they that keep the things that are written in this book are going to be blessed. There's a blessing connected with the book of Revelation. And so uh, we, we intro'd this this last week. We're going to kind of continue the introduction this week as we get going. And we're going to look at verses 4. Down to verse 6 this morning, 4 to verse 6. And so I've got it on the screen, and I want you to just follow along. Let me read, I'll pray, and then we'll continue with this introduction. The Bible says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be to you and peace, which, which from him, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we'll get to verse seven next week. But but I want to just this morning give us the salutation of the book of Revelation. So what's happening here is that John is is beginning the greeting or the salutation to these seven churches, and as such, we're going to learn some things about us because we're a church, and I think God has some, some practical things for us to take away. So let's pray, and then we'll get in the, the message this morning. Father, again, we thank you for the morning. Bless us, God, as we study. Uh, Lord, we need to hear from you today, God. We want to experience you and, and your Word. We want to we want to see you as you are. And in the book of Revelation, God, we we see you as you are in your glory. And and so, Lord, help us to be changed because of how we see you and what we see about you and how good you are and how powerful you are and how right you are. And, Lord, for every person that's here today, God, I pray you bless them. May your Holy Spirit speak to each of us personally about things that need attention in our life. God, convict us where we need conviction. God, encourage us where we need encouragement. Whatever the case is, Lord, may you, your son, Jesus Christ, be glorified because of what's said today. We ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick it up in verse 4, and the first point in your notes is this, the salutation of the revelation. Verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so this is just the greeting, the introduction. Now, historically, what's happening is Jesus Christ is actually... Giving words to seven literal churches in Asia Minor. These would have been seven literal churches in Asia Minor. Uh, if you if you don't have a map in front of you, this would be modern-day Turkey. And if you still don't know where that's at, then you can Google that later uh, of where that's at on a map. But what a what an amazing privilege to have the Lord Jesus Christ give and and cause His words to be delivered personally. To individual churches. I mean, could, could you imagine if somebody walked in today and, and, and literally had a letter saying, hey, listen, Jesus Christ gave his revelation and he gave it to your specific church, the church at Logan Drive. That'd be, I mean, what an amazing thing. Now, listen, the truth is, if somebody did that today, we would call them a heretic because, because that doesn't happen anymore. But I'm saying historically, God was still revealing his word And could you imagine, literally, this word being given to to God, uh, then to to Christ, then to his angel, then to John, and John made sure that it got to those seven churches, which are in Asia. What a tremendous privilege, and yet, because of the process of inspiration and preservation, we actually have the words of Jesus Christ today. So in other words, we're here today, we're, we're gathered as a church that worships Jesus Christ. And we have access to the very words of God today. And that's a tremendous blessing, just as it was in the first century. It's a blessing in the 21st century. And so God has something to say to these seven churches. Look at Revelation 1 and verse 11, and it tells us which churches specifically Christ wants to, to communicate with and communicate to. Revelation 1, verse 11, it says this, saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he says, here they are, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So those are the seven historical churches that the book of Revelation was was purposed to. Now you got to ask the question, why didn't God write to all the churches in Asia? Because there were more than 7 churches in Asia, and there were more than 7 churches that were in existence throughout that that part of the world. Why did God only write to 7 of them? Asia is a very interesting place as you study the Bible. As a matter of fact in Acts chapter 16 in Paul's missionary journey, Paul wanted to go to Asia to preach the gospel. But look at Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 7. It says, When they'd gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. That's very interesting to me. Why would God, through his Holy Spirit, shut the door to get into Asia with the gospel? I mean, doesn't God want the people in Asia to be saved? And the answer to that is, of course. But that, a, that, that area of Asia had a tremendous influence of false doctrine. As a matter of fact, the book of Galatians unpacks some of that for us. The, the book of Galatians, Galatians tells us that people were going back to the Old Testament law instead of walking in the grace of God. And so, and so where God shut the door in Acts 16, God opened the door later in Paul's ministry so that all of Asia heard the word of God. Look at Acts 19 and verse 10. It says, they continued by the space of two years so that all which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so the point is God had a specific time for, for the word of God to get into Asia. God's timing is just important, as important as his mission and, and can I just take a rabbit trail? God's timing in your life is just as important as, as the mission that God's called you to do. God's timing is everything. And when Paul wanted to go into Asia, the spirit of God shut the door so that he couldn't go. And sometimes we, we face closed doors, and, and I want you to understand there's a God that opens doors, but there's also a God that closes doors. And we need to be sensitive to that. And, and God, has, God should have the privilege in our life to redirect us according to his perfect will. We, we need to have flexibility in our life to be used of God. Paul could have very easily tried to just continue to push into Asia. He would not have succeeded because the Holy Ghost forbade him to do that. But later, the entire area of Asia heard the gospel. So of these seven churches mentioned in Asia Minor, only three of these churches are mentioned anywhere else in Scripture— the church of Ephesus, it's mentioned in Acts 18, Acts 19. Thyatira is mentioned in Acts chapter 16 with, with Lydia. And then Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Colossians. But again, God didn't write to every church in Asia, Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, there were other churches in, in that area. There was the church of Colossae. Colossae was 11 miles from Laodicea. Why didn't Christ write to that church? There was a a church at Troas in Acts chapter 20, verses 6 through 7. Why didn't Christ write to that church? Well, here's the key that you need to get in your Bible. You need to understand that, that seven is God's number of completion or perfection. Seven is God's number of completion or perfection. In other words, Christ is going to write to these seven churches. And, and, and and we'll, we'll, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, but, but when God does something in a series of seven, it's perfect and it's complete. You see, we as Gentiles, as in, you know, non-Jewish people, the way we count is from one to 10, right? We count one through 10 and then we start over with 11 and we go to 19 and then we start over with 20 to 29 and we count by 10. We start over every 10, God doesn't count like that. God counts one to seven, and then he starts over. So the eighth thing, whatever the eighth thing is, is actually the first thing. Are you you guys tracking? I know it's early and it's math. Are, Are you okay? So listen, there are only seven days of the week, and God set a pattern in the book of Genesis, and when those seven days are done, God starts over. And all through the Bible, Sunday is the first day of the week in God's economy. I know most of you think that today is the last day of the week, but it's actually the first day of the week, and I'm glad you're here because it means you're starting your week off right. As it relates to music, there are seven notes of music. And, and again, listen, don't the musicians in the room, bear with me. I know generally we start with with the note of C, but let me just for illustration's sake say that the seven notes in music are, are A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And the very next note starts over. It goes back to A. There are seven notes. You say, well, Jay, there's a piano right behind you, and it has white keys and black keys on that, and every white key on a piano is a whole note, and those black keys are like half notes or half steps between notes, but there are only seven notes in music. There are only seven notes. As it relates to color, the colors of a rainbow, the color in the rainbow, for instance, there are seven colors in the rainbow. Do you guys remember the guy Roy G. Biv? Anybody remember that guy? i got to think about that. I I was like, last night I was thinking, man, you know, I learned that like super early in elementary school. Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow. I gotta look at my notes so I don't screw it up. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Seven, seven colors of the rainbow. So listen, in the book of Revelation, seven is the primary number. There are seven churches, there are seven candlesticks, there are seven stars, seven angels, seven vials, seven trumpets, seven seals. At the end of Revelation, seven key people. And all of these sevens give us a complete and perfect revelation of Jesus Christ. So seven is God's perfect number. And so what that means, and here's the devotional point, these seven churches represent seven types of churches. Because there are only seven types of churches... Well, Jesus only had to write to seven of them, and and as we get further into this study and we examine each of those churches, we're going to see that every church that has ever existed from the book of Acts to the book of Revelation match up to one of those seven churches. There's only seven types of churches. This church is one of those seven types of churches, and the question is, which one is it? And I got a bad feeling I already know the answer, because most churches In our day and age, match one of those seven churches. And and it's not the one necessarily that, that we should match. I just want you to understand that as we study those churches in detail, we're going to see some things that our church needs to glean as well as what our church needs to avoid. But there are only seven types of churches. Let me go a step further and tell you there's only seven types of Christian. Now, if you're saved today, you're one of seven types of Christian. You're either a babe in Christ. You're either a little child in Christ, you're a child in Christ, you're a young man or young woman in Christ, you're a father in Christ, you're an elder or you're the aged in Christ. You're only one of seven types of Christians according to the word of God because seven is God's complete number. It's his perfect number. And so historically, we're going to look at these seven churches later. Devotionally, each of those churches represent a type of church. But then doctrinally, as John looks back over these seven churches, and and again, we'll we'll establish that context here shortly, what those seven churches are going to point to for us is also seven periods of church history. In other words, when, when John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and the Lord Jesus Christ tells him to look at what was in the past, What John is literally looking back on is the church age, from the book of Acts through the book of Revelation. And what we have in Revelation 2 and 3 is a historical account of the periods of church history, what the church has dealt with and overcome throughout history, leading all the way up to the rapture of the church in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And those seven churches are only mentioned in Revelation 1, Revelation 2, and Revelation 3. Outside of that, there's no other mention of the church except for Revelation 22 and verse 16 where, where John is closing the letter and he's closing it to the churches. So, so we're going to see a doctrinal understanding that as John stands on the, the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, and as God allows him to look back in history, what literally he is seeing is all of church history encapsulated in seven periods of church history leading up to the rapture of the church. Hope you had coffee this morning. I told you this is going to be a thorough study. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So we see the salutation of the revelation, but this is really the main point this morning. Point number two, the security of the revelation. The security of the revelation. I want you to pick it up in verse 1. Because this verse, this passage is amazing. Look at what it says. It says, grace be to you and peace. Grace be to you and peace. And then pay attention to the wording. From him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Now listen, you have to pause when you, when you get to that passage, if you know anything about the book of revelation, man, listen, this book is full of judgment. This book is full of plague. It's full it's full of vials of, of God's wrath being poured out on this earth. It is full of war. And yet it begins with an offer of grace and peace. The book that reveals Christ in his glory and righteousness and judgment begins with the offer of grace and peace. And that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing because, because there are portions of this book, when you read this book, you would ask the question, where is God's grace in all of this? And where is God's peace in all of this? Well, it's right here at the beginning. <laughs> This is where it's at. You know, we said last week that that by the end of the book of Revelation, everybody gets what they deserve. In other words, Jesus Christ gets his throne and his glory and his dominion over all of creation. Christ gets what he deserves by the end of the book of Revelation. By the end of the book of Revelation, the devil gets what he deserves. The devil will spend an eternity in a lake of fire. And the truth is, at the end of Revelation, that lost man will face his final judgment at the great white throne judgment, and he will be judged for his sin and, and by his works, and he will be found guilty and cast into the lake of fire forever. But this book begins with something that we don't deserve grace and peace. We don't deserve it, we're all just sinners. And I want you to understand that John goes on record to say, listen, grace and peace come from a very specific person. As a matter of fact, there's three persons that he mentions. From him which is and which was and which is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And so, and so get this in your notes. Grace and peace are only available in the Godhead. They're, they're only available in the Godhead, and maybe you're here this morning, and you're trying to find grace and peace in your life, and maybe you've looked in a million different places and tried a million different things. Can I just tell you this morning, grace and peace are only available in the Godhead. You, you may say, Jay, okay, what is that? What is the Godhead? Well, that's a really good question. Acts chapter 17, verse 29, as Paul is preaching at Mars Hill, he says, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold, silver, or stone, graven by art and man's device. And so Paul is preaching to a bunch of pagans. And what he does is he contrasts the Godhead, which means God that is three and yet one, he contrasts the Godhead to three corruptible materials. Gold, silver, stone. And he says, you know, you know what? We ought not to think that the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone. The Godhead is the, is, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Even though the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, the word Godhead is found in the Bible. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. And, and, and so what Paul is telling us in Romans 1 is that the physical creation of the world reveals the Godhead and, and man is without excuse to realize that there is a God. Everything in this universe breaks down to, into a system of threes. Time doesn't exist unless you have past, present, and future. An object doesn't exist unless it has length, width, and height. Everything breaks down into a system of threes. Why? Because it reveals the Godhead. It reveals that there's a God that is three and one. And and, and this is important because grace and peace are only available in the person of the Godhead. And so if you need grace and peace this morning, you came to the right place because this morning we're going to see how to get it. Number one, grace and peace are from God the Father. Grace and peace come from God the Father. Him which is and which was and which is to come. And and, and what God is teaching us through the Word of God is that God the Father is present, past, and future. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's eternal. Genesis 1:1. In the beginning... God. God was already in existence. He's always been in existence. He's not limited by space or by time. And a lot of times we, we, we forget, man, that, that our God is eternal. Time is, is, is a finite thing. It's, it's something that God himself is outside of because he is eternal. And I want you to understand when the Bible talks about God the Father, he talks about him which is and which was and which, which is to come. And, and maybe you would say, well, wait a second, I thought that's Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ is actually mentioned third in this list. And, and if you ever try to separate Christ and the Father, good luck, because you're not going to do a really good job of that. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, you know, this is the, the Christmas card verse. You guys got your Christmas cards ordered yet? You know, Christmas is like how many weeks away? Some of you know that. This is the Christmas card verse, right? Isaiah 9 and verse 6 For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And then there's a colon in that verse. And that colon represents about 2,000 years of history. Because that verse goes on to say that the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now the prophecy is about Christ. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That didn't happen at his first coming, but it will certainly happen at his second coming. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Listen. Listen the everlasting Father. Wait a second. I I thought you said God is God the Father and Christ is God the Son. Yes, but God the Son, Jesus Christ, is also called the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. And if you're looking for grace and peace today, number one, it's available in God the Father. Number two, grace and peace are available in the person of the Spirit of God. The second part of the Godhead, The verse says, from the seven, capital S, spirits, which are before his throne. And I don't know about you, but if that's the first time you've ever read that verse, you're probably like, wait a second, seven spirits? I thought there was one spirit, right? I thought there was one Holy Spirit. Now, now there are seven? Well, what's interesting is, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that these seven spirits are mentioned three more times In the book of Revelation, let me give it to you. Revelation 3 and verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. What? Revelation 4 and verse 5. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Listen to this. Which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, well, God's kind of trying to reveal something to us. Somebody has those seven spirits, Jesus Christ. These seven spirits manifest as seven lamps of fire burning before the throne of God. Look at Revelation 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven what? Eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent forth into all the earth and so based on the book of revelation these seven spirits are before the throne they're as seven lamps they are seven eyes which god sends into the earth anybody anybody lost yet oh how do i reconcile that man because i thought there was only one holy spirit Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 4, because even in the Old Testament, we see parallel scripture that that reiterate the importance of this. Look at Zechariah 4, verses 1 and 2. So in Zechariah, I think the adult group is teaching through Zechariah right now. Is that right? Zechariah chapter 4. I should have sat in when y'all taught this to make sure I got this right. Zechariah 4 and verse 1. It says that the angel that talked with me came again and and waked me as a man that's wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick of all gold and a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps. Revelation 4 and verse 5 said that those seven spirits are seven lamps. And, and so Zechariah is seeing these seven lamps. And then in chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet of in the hand of Zerubbabel, with those seven, those seven lamps. And here it is, listen. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. God's Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirits are as lamps, they are lamps, they are eyes which God sends forth in the earth. What are they looking for? That's a really good question. Second Chronicles chapter sixteen and verse nine tells you what they're looking for. The Bible says in 2 excuse me, not Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles sixteen and verse nine that the eyes of the Lord, those seven spirits, those seven lamps, those seven eyes, they run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. God is looking for people with a right heart toward him so that his Holy Spirit can show himself strong on their behalf. And let me just ask you the question this morning, church. If the Lord's eyes are running to and fro in this earth, and they are, and they happen to run down Logan Drive, and they do, what kind of men and women will he find? What kind of men and women will he find? What kind of hearts will he find? Because he wants to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward God. Not sinless, but a heart that realizes, you know what? I need you, Lord. I need your grace and peace. And whatever you reveal to me, that's what I want to do. I want to walk with you. I want to be convicted by you. I want to repent to you. I want to have a right fellowship and a right relationship with you. God's eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth. And listen, God will see past the shell of Christianity that you put up, and he will see past your religion, and he will see past the work of your flesh to the heart. He's looking to give grace and peace to people. But you got to have a right heart to receive it. So is it seven spirits or one spirit? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Look at Ephesians 4. You know, Ephesians 4 tells us there's one body and one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 tells us that by one spirit, we're baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentiles. Okay. So Jay, you still have an answer to the question. Is it one spirit or seven spirit? Seven spirits. I think the answer really is revealed in Isaiah chapter 11. And that's why I kind of put that asterisk on your your notes this morning. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. And and there's this prophecy about Christ in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says that, that they're gonna, there's going to come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is a family tree, so to speak, that, that's, that, that Christ will be of, of the lineage of, of Jesse and of, of David. And, and he's talking about Christ. And here's what he says in verse 2 about him. He says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom the spirit of understanding the spirit of counsel the spirit of might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the lord and and, and what's interesting to me is that in isaiah chapter 11 what you have is seven characteristics seven spirits if you will that represent and reflect the one true spirit. And there is no discrepancy. And so here's the key in your notes. What we see in Isaiah 11 is the complete oneness and ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. And those seven spirits that are before the throne are the seven eyes and the seven lamps. And they're looking for something. And what they are, are the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might and of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And let me just tell you, grace and peace is only available through the Spirit of God. It's only available through the Spirit of God. And he's looking, by the way. He's running to and fro in this earth. His eyes are looking for hearts that are perfect toward him. And it begs the question, what would he find when he looks on my heart? And then number three, grace and peace are from the person of Jesus Christ. It says, and from Jesus Christ. And again, we said that that God the Father was mentioned first, but we also know that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is mentioned. And it says three things about Jesus Christ. Number one, it says, Christ is the faithful witness. He's a faithful witness. Proverbs 14 and verse 5 says this, a faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Christ was a faithful witness. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 3, again, he is called the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. What was Christ a faithful witness of? Well, Christ revealed God to us. He he bore the image of God. He In his body, according to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, in Christ himself dwelt all the fullness of the the Godhead bodily. Christ was a faithful witness of God, the character of God. He revealed God to mankind. Do you remember in the Gospels when when they were asking Christ, hey man, listen, just show us the Father. And Jesus said, listen, bro, that's in the Greek if you really study that out. He's like, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. Because Christ is a faithful witness. He reveals the Father. Christ is the first begotten of the dead. The Bible tells us that there's something unique about Jesus Christ. He's the first begotten of the dead. Now, listen, that doesn't mean he's the first person to ever be raised from the dead. There were people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. But guess what? They died again. And there were people in in the Gospels that were raised from the dead. And guess what? They died again. But Christ was the first person to ever rise from the dead to never die again, ever. He's never dying again. The Bible says in Acts 26 and verse 23 that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. That's a powerful thing. He is the firstborn, first begotten of the dead. In other words, he's the first man to resurrect that'll never die again. And in Christ, you can experience eternal life. Man, listen, you don't have to fear physical death. John 11 and verse 26, Christ asked this question. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall not die. Believeth thou this? And let me tell you why that's important today. Because we live in a community and a culture where everyone's scared of death. And whether it's from COVID or whether it's from a vaccination or whether it's from government overreach, we're all scared to death of death. And can I give you some assurance this morning? In Christ... If you have believed in him, number one, you are alive in Christ. And because you are alive in Christ, you will never die. Now, your physical body may stop working, but that doesn't mean that you're going to die. You have eternal life in Christ. You are sealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You have complete victory in Christ. Listen, at the moment of your last breath on this earth is the first second that you will experience eternal life in Christ, in him. There is nothing to fear. But man, we live like practical atheists, even as Christians in the 21st century. God offers grace and peace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we, we ought to value that. We ought to, to long for that. And we ought to receive that because he's the first begotten of the dead. And last time I checked, he's still alive. He's never going to die again. And the Bible says that if I believed in him and my trust for salvation is in him, because I'm in him, I have eternal life. And we can rejoice in that. The Bible also says that Christ is the prince of the kings of the earth. And listen, all these jokers running around thinking they're in control of this earth, man. Their time is limited. I'm just telling you. Christ is the king of the earth. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, which in his times he shall show who is the only and blessed potentate prince, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is one king and one Lord, and he's coming very, very soon. And so grace and peace come from the Godhead. And the question is, do you have that kind of relationship with God? Do you experience grace and peace? Are you searching in it for, for that in every other place except the one place that it's available in the person of God Almighty, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son? So here it, it begs the question, how do we get that grace and peace? If it's available from God the Father and the Spirit of God and the Son of God, how do we get how did God give us this grace and peace? Well, you're asking good questions. Look at verse five. It says, "Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen." Let me tell you how you get grace and peace. You get it number one because he loved us. He loved us, and that that word is very specific. It's, it's past tense. He loved us. When did God love us? Where in history did God manifest his love toward us? And and again, man, as Christians, we kind of, you know, we kind of get a little liberal with, with what the Bible says, man, God loves you. We use it in a present tense application. And although there is maybe a little bit of truth to that, the Bible tells us that God actually loved us at a certain place and at a certain time. It's always past tense. As a matter of fact, I won't bore you with the details, but every time that you study God's love toward us, it's always past tense. So what does that mean? Well, it means 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. It means that when God manifested his love, he did it at a certain place and at a certain time, look at verse nine, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loves us presently. That's not what it says. He loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I just want you to understand this morning that the reason that we can experience grace and peace is because 2,000 years ago, God's love was manifest at a certain time and at a certain place. It was on the cross of Calvary for all of humanity and for all time. And that's how you can experience grace and peace because God manifests his love in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ to this earth. He did that 2,000 years ago. He loved us at the cross. He sent his son to die for our sin and raised him again from the death, from from the grave. And so the point is, you're not going to find the love of God anywhere else. You're not going to find it in any human relationship. You're not going to find it at any present moment. You're going to find the love of God in the person and the purpose and the proclamation and at the point in time where God loved us the cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe we should change our vernacular as Christians and tell people, hey, God loved you. And what he did was he loved you so much that he gave his son to die for your sin. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved, that's past tense. He loved the world and he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. And every saved person ought to say amen right there. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Begotten Son of God. That's a powerful verse. Most of the time we read John 3, 16, we never make it down to verse 18. God manifested his love on the cross. God loved the world and sent his son on the cross so that his son becomes the propitiation for our sin. And let me just tell you, the love of God isn't present any other way in your life except through the cross of Jesus Christ. But listen, when you come to Christ, what you can receive is grace and peace. And that's the only way you can receive it it's it's, it, it, it's it's the only way you can receive it. It's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Number two, the Bible says that he washed us. We we can receive that grace and peace, number one, because, because Christ died for us. He loved us so much that he sent his son. But number two, he washed us and he washed us from our sin. And let me just tell you, there's nothing that can wash your sin. A sprinkling uh, of water as an infant can't wash away your sin. The water's a Baptism as an adult can't wash away your sin. If you were to go sacrifice animals, goats, bulls, cows, sheep in a Levitical system, that can't wash away your sin. The Bible says that he washed us in his own blood, in his own blood. How how powerful is that blood? Well, 1 Peter tells us in in chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 that we weren't redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold and, and God's economy that has no value. God says these are just corruptible things from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But God tells us that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. God says that blood is able to wash us from our sin. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, Paul's going through and he talks about the Corinthians were sometimes fornicators and and man, they, they were just adulterers and liars and all these different things. And he says, such were some of you, but ye are washed. Man, any sinners that have been washed in the house this morning, anybody here that's been washed from their sin through the blood of Christ you know, we sing the song, what can wash away my sin? And the answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's only through the blood of Christ that we can be clean from our sin. God loved us on the cross. When we respond to Christ, he washes us from our sin. And let me just tell you, you may be the biggest sinner in this room. Your sin ain't greater than the blood of Christ. I mean it. It's the precious blood of Christ. And however deep your stain is, If you'll humble yourself at the feet of Christ at the cross of Calvary, he'll wash you, and he'll make you clean. And then God gives us one more little thing there that I think is very important. Because most of the time we would stop right there. Man, God loved me. God washed me. Now we're good. Well, God's not done yet. (laughs) The Bible says that he made us. He made us into something else. Revelation 5 and verse 10 tells us that he made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. And can I just tell you that God's grace and peace is so amazing that one day we have the opportunity to rule and reign with Christ on this earth during his millennial reign. Do we deserve that? Can we earn that? No. It's only because of his grace and his peace. And so listen, that's what God wants to give us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then let me get to the last point so we can get out of here. Because he wants to give us that, it ought to make us want to give him something. And here's the key, key question. What should we give God because of this grace and peace that we receive and the answer is glory and dominion it's glory and dominion look at verse six and then we're done god god just gets through telling us about who he is the the godhead the father the seven spirits jesus christ who gives us grace and peace and he does it because he loved us and he washed us and he made us kings and priests and then John says, listen, there's something that, that he needs to get. And in order to be glory and dominion forever and ever. Can I just tell you that, that if you've been the recipient of God's grace and peace, it ought to be natural to give God glory. And it ought to be natural to give God dominion and control and authority over your life. And I know we're right out of time, but listen, you've got you to stick right here just for a minute. The Bible says in Psalm 29 and verse 2, Give unto the Lord the glory, do His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Psalm 96 and verse 8, it says, Give unto the Lord the glory, do His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. You see, God is do something because of the grace and peace that He's bestowed upon us. It's glory. Do you guys remember the story in Luke chapter 17? I'm sure you do, right off the bat. Yeah, I don't know that story. <laughs> don't you love it when preachers do that? In Luke chapter 17, there's a story of these 10 lepers. They had leprosy. And, and, and Christ heals all 10 of these lepers. What's interesting about that story is a great, it's a great picture of salvation. Leprosy is a picture of Sin. And once it's pronounced on you, you're, you're called unclean and you have to go to the priest. And, and yet Christ healed these men without going to a priest, without offering an offering. He healed them based on his word and his grace. The Bible says in Luke 17 and verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice, what did he do? He glorified God and he fell down on his face uh, at his feet And he gave him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, we're not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? They're not found that return to give God glory, save this stranger. And you know, I kind of wonder in Christianity if that's not the same truth. A lot of people receive healing. Healing. A lot of people receive salvation through Jesus Christ because he loved us and he washed us from our sin. But there's not a lot of Christians necessarily that come back to God to give him glory. And I think the Lord just many times is sitting there wondering, where are the nine? Where are the ones that have been washed? I mean, where are the ones that have been made clean? Where are the ones that have received God's grace and peace? And why aren't they giving him glory? The second thing we need to give Christ is dominion. And we don't have the time. But that word dominion, every time you see it, it has everything to do with the kingdom. And it has everything to do with power and authority. And the the question is, who has the power and authority in my life? Do I or does Christ? Who has dominion in my life? And the answer ought to be Christ. 1 Peter 5 and verse 11 says to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jude verse 25 says to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power. Listen, both now and ever. Amen. Now let, me just, let me just challenge the church. I know we covered a lot of material this morning. We're bad about doing that around here. But listen, number one, have you experienced God's grace and peace in your life? Now, if you haven't experienced God's grace and peace, I want you to know that the offer still stands. It's available, but it's only in the Godhead. And if you'll take yourself back 2,000 years ago to that cross of Calvary and understand that Christ loved you, he died for you, his shed blood was shed for your sin, and he's able to wash you and make you new in him you can experience God's grace and peace but for those of us that have already experienced that I think this last point is really the most important point because we've received that from Christ what is Christ receiving from us is he receiving glory from our life now and if you need motivation for that let me remind you that he loved you he washed you and he made you kings and priests for his kingdom he ought to get the glory Does Christ have the dominion over your life right now? You say, I don't like that word. Well, it's okay. It's in the Bible. Because at the end of the day, he is the king. And if he is the king and is positioned on the throne of my life, that means he makes the decisions and I submit to him. And he has dominion. And if you struggle with that, let me just remind you that he loved you and he washed you and he made you kings and priests. You see, dominion and glory for a Christian ought to be easy peasy, but many times it's not. And the Lord's asking, where are the nine? Where are the nine? Let's pray. Father, we do love you, Lord. Thank you for the time. Lord, I know the word, God, it, th- there's so much here. And Lord, even in, in a short 45, 50-minute sermon, God, there's just no way to cover every detail. Lord, what I do know is that you have something very specific for every one of us. First and foremost, God, we need to know that we've experienced your grace and peace in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to know that we're saved. And Lord, if we're here today and we're not saved, would you you impress upon our heart through the Holy Spirit to humbly come to Christ and to receive him as Lord and Savior? And God, if we have experienced that in in our life personally, God, would you Would you examine our heart and would we be honest and would we confess that we give you glory and dominion in our life? Because you're due. With your heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, I know we're over time, but listen, there's a couple of important questions that need to be asked. Number one, if you're here today and you've never received God's grace and peace, don't leave without it. How many of you would say today, "I I know I'm saved. I know I've received God's grace and peace in my life. I know I have. I remember the time in my life where I went to the cross of Calvary for my sin. Take your hands down. Maybe you're here today and you say, Jay, that's not me. I need God's grace and peace through Jesus Christ today. I need to come to salvation today. Would you raise your hand? Let me pray for you. Anyone at all that would say, Jay, that's me. I want to settle that issue in my heart once and for all. Maybe you're here today and you have experienced God's grace and peace, but but God is not getting the glory and dominion that he's due from your life. How many of you would say, I want to change that by the grace of God? Just raise your hand. Let me pray for you. Man, I want to change that by the grace of God.